You know what I love about this time of the year, Josie? What? All the fairs and the festivals. I was just at a festival tonight. It was so much fun. It was at the zoo. You know where I would really like to go? After reading The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, I just want to go back to the Chicago World Fair. going on not much i feel like we just talked <sighs> earlier in the week because we did we did we did we've been talking a lot this week not that i'm complaining i love it yeah but, yeah. We, but we have been talking a lot this week i feel well we've been also recording a lot too <laughs> we've been recording a lot we've been talking a lot Big things have been happening. We're, like, discussing new things. We scheduled a production meeting. Mm -hmm. So many things coming up. So many things. So many things. Yeah. So, first to everybody, welcome to Potheads Who Read. Potheads Who Read. And I'm Sheila. I'm Josie. We're in the middle of our three-part series. So, what we did was we read one book. We're reading another book. And then we're going to compare the books, which I'm really excited to talk about the comparison when we do that one. Too. I am too. Um, so our first book, if you have not listened to it, it was um, The White City by Grace Hitchcock. And it, it's like a murder, mystery, romance, Christian yeah. novel. Um Fiction novel, yeah. Fiction novel, and it's about H.H. Holmes and the World's Fair in 1893. I was about to say 1993. (laughs) (laughs) Or 100 years before. Or 100 years later. Uh, And then this time we've read um, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. And the next episode after this episode, we're going to talk about how these two books are different and similar and what we thought of each one, like just yeah. comparing them. It's yes. going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun conversation. I am excited for it. Me too. Um, so what's been going on besides, um, I mean, the last time we talked was like a week ago and we read, um, we did our potheads in training. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I I don't. I'll be honest. Like we got out of school yesterday. Mhm. So we like we've been just doing end of school year stuff. So we've done mm. piano recitals. We've done uh, school awards. End of school like the last day of school, which my kid has grown like two inches. I compared his first day picture and his last day picture and the he- short. He's huge. So much older. He's just, he grew so much. He grew, he matured. He lost his baby face fat. He had like some chub in his face. I didn't realize how much he had lost until I looked at that photo. And I was. I know. Yeah. You've been um, doing a lot of end of school year stuff. And 
I barely knew it was the end of the school year. I only knew that because I would drive by random graduations or see random graduates on the train or whatever. Um, No, I mean, my beach volleyball team started a couple weeks ago. My indoor volleyball team had our playoffs this week, which we we actually passed our first round of playoffs and then lost in the second round of playoffs. Mm. And it was a little, like, infuriating, though, at the same time, because I we're in a rec league. We're there just to have fun. We've all played volleyball before. I mean, one girl on our team is from Estonia, and she was, like, semi-pro. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, she's really good. But, I mean, I played all through middle school and high school. One of the other girls played all through middle school and high school. We had another girl, like, all of us have played at some point, and then we just have some guys who are really great at volleyball who are interested. So it's not that our team isn't bad, but we're not, like, amazing. Mm -hmm. We're not going to, like, bump set spike, like, super hardcore every single time, you know. What? Why not? (laughs) Well, you would say that, but we're, like, in a rec league, and they have an intermediate league, and they have a step above the intermediate league. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the team that we played in the second round of playoffs, and I mean, we've been playing them all season, so we kind of knew what to expect, Mm -hmm. but it was literally every single time they went up, it was spiking it down so hard that all of us were just like, I'm not about to kill myself over a t-shirt, because you win a t-shirt if you win the league, like, championship, and it just was really kind of infuriating and disheartening, and... That it became um, so competitive instead yeah. of enjoyable. And don't get me wrong. Everybody on my team is very competitive. But mm-hmm. we're also under the thought that this is just a rec league. It is meant just to be fun. Right. And I've played other teams before where they are on a, a higher level than the team that I'm on in a rec league. And they notice that we're just not on their same level. And they've, like, pulled back a little bit and, like... They'll go for a kill every once in a while, but it was literally every single time they just went up for a kill. I One of our guys, like, got hit in the face, and, like, Aww. it was just, yeah. That's so it was evil. just, it was awesome because the first round of the playoff, we played this team who we had a lot of great volleys. We went back and forth a lot. We ended up going to a third game because we each had won a game, and it was right. literally like, point for point every single game. It was so awesome. Those are fun games, though. They were great. And then, like, that came out. And I'm just like, dude, like, we're obviously not on your level. So kill it enough to, like, win, but just, like, go for the volleys. Like, make it fun. Like, you could still go deep in the corner or, like, you know, like, whatever. But I was just glad that we didn't end up last in the league. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, I've just been doing that and working. I still am suffering from my allergies, and cotton is flying everywhere in the city right now. So I feel like cotton was. I know. I feel like I'm just walking through the city, and I can just feel my allergies, like, building up and doing all this stuff, and I can just, like, feel myself not breathing. But but it's gotten better. That's that's good. Well, when I was... um, so just kind of going back to your cottonwood story. So those of you that have never been around cottonwood trees, they're not, it's not real cotton, cotton, like right. cotton in the fields down in the south. 
but the trees they have like these kind of blossom cottons and then they like when the wind blows there's like cotton just floating all over the place little tufts of cotton well I'm in college like I think I was uh I think it was my junior year of college or the summer I was turning I was going to be a junior and my mom's like you're not feeling well all the time let's go get your allergies tested I get my allergies tested and like my main trigger was the cottonwood tree which I live in Wyoming it's the state tree. <laughs> it was so funny because the doctor was like, yeah, you probably don't want to live where there's cottonwood trees. And I was like, um, I'm in Wyoming. What am I supposed to do? And he's like, well, I mean, it was just funny. Like the things they tell you. I mean, probably should be not living near right. cottonwood trees. Well, that's not an option right now. Right. I haven't seen it as bad this year, but I know last year I had really bad allergies as well. And I just remember this one day that it legit looked like there was snow on the ground because there was so much cotton gathered up in the grass and on the on the fences. Yeah. And like the the gutters. I remember the gutters would always be full of it. It looked like it snowed. I do also, I was actually just talking about this with a, a friend of mine earlier also that I've kind of been going nonstop since last fall with work and like personal trips and just things that are happening that I I haven't had an allergy cold hit me as hard as it has where it actually, like, I was in my apartment, could not move for, like, two days. It yeah. probably should have been three, but I had to get back to work. And I was like, you know, I've just been so nonstop, and I've been so crazy about not getting sick and just going, 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 that my body just was like, just going to shut you down. You you have one little thing. We're just going to shut your whole body down. Wow. So I'm I'm getting there, but it's fine. You start taking care of yourself and not doing as much. I actually saw this list on Facebook today, and it was like eight signs that you're burnt out. And I sent you had uh, all of them. Yeah, and I sent <laughs> Andy, and I was like, I feel attacked. And he's like, Did somebody send this to you? I'm like, No, I just saw it scrolling, but I still feel attacked. <laughs> Facebook sent it to you. Yeah. Facebook universe sent it to me. It's always listening. <laughs> always. It's listening to us right now. Always listening. It's yeah. gonna send cottonwood. It's gonna send cottonwood to my house it's because it's cottonwood. Like we're gonna now have things about cottonwood, and I'm gonna have the eight signs you're you're burnt out. I'll send, my... I'll send that to you too because I feel like you might be there with. I'm, you yeah. might be there with your end of end of your festivity. I'm excited, yeah. So we had today was the first day of summer. We kind of chilled. We slept in. Next week we we're just gonna hang out, and then the week after that, Dash has his first summer camp, which is Splash Camp. Fun. So it's like swim camp and yeah. playing in the water for half the day. So it'll be fun. I'll make him exhausted and. I'll get a little bit of time to do some stuff that sometimes I I don't get to do. Um, yeah. Or I, I won't have as much of since he'll be home all the time for the summer. And I, 
I know some people are like, oh, my kid's home for the summer. I'll, I'll, you know, like I have to put them in every camp and, you know, they put them in everything they possibly can not to necessarily give their kids um, things to do. It's to get them out of the house. Mm -hmm. I totally love spending time with my son, but I also want to give him some opportunities like splash camp and I finally found an art camp that he can go to for his, that has his age level in it. Oh, so there's, wow. yeah. So there's things like that, that I just want to give him that, you know, I know he would enjoy. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a couple camps and then we're going to Wyoming for, for two weeks. So that sounds like fun. Yeah. So that's about it. But that if anything, you'll at least see your hard work for My planning your reunion. I'm slightly worried about it, but that's about it. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, awesome. All right. Well, are we ready for a Harry Potter fact? Yes, ma'am. All right. I feel like this one's a little fun because it's. It compares to some serial killers, and since we read about one, I feel like it's kind of fun. It's it's a mix here. Yeah. Um, novelist Stephen King said that Professor Umbridge from the Harry Potter series is the, quote, greatest make-believe villain to come along since Hannibal Lecter. I like that quote. I do, too. I like she Stephen is, King. I like Stephen King, too, which... Made me laugh your post about um, the summer. <laughs> um, yeah. I do like Stephen King, and I've read a lot of his books. And you think of him as kind of like the the person who writes all of the horror like characters. Yeah. He's probably one of the best known for it. And so for him to think yeah. that when she literally is just a nasty person, she doesn't. Other than, like, making the kids use the one pen, like, I will yeah. not tell a lie. Like, doing stuff like that. All of her stuff is just so her nasty. comments and just underhandedness. And you're just mm -hmm. like, meh. Yeah. yeah. She, no. is, she is a really great villain. Um, she really is, yeah. Speaking of Stephen King, have you ever read any of his sons? Joe um, is his son. We yeah. have talked about this a few times, and I have not read any of his stuff, and you keep telling me to. Horns. You have to read Horns. I know. You told me that, and I looked it up once, and I thought about buying it once. Maybe we should do it for Halloween. Ooh, maybe. October. Maybe Let's see whose month that is to pick a book. We got to figure that out. Actually, I already have it figured out. Hold do on. you? Yeah. <laughs> I already have it all figured out for each month who who picks what out. Oh, it's you, Sheila. Oh, I can pick whatever I want. There's another one by him that's really good, and I think it's actually scary. Horns isn't really scary, but there's another one that's a bit more. It might be better for Halloween. Horns yeah. is really good, though. And speaking of horns, they made it a movie. With Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe is the main character. So, um, just so all you Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe fans, yeah. go watch Horns. I believe it's on Amazon Prime, or it used to be. 
Oh, really? I'll have to go check it out. If I like the book, maybe. Or if I like the movie, maybe I'll read the book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll read the book first. That's so much better. I mean, the, the, it was a good movie. But, uh, yeah. So. Maybe that'll be a summer read that I have. I'm like, that's one thing I will say is I've been on a reading kick. I have not. <laughs> part of it's just me being sick. And it's also part of me, but I've been driving a lot for work. So I've been listening to audiobooks. So yeah. No, I get it. It's easier when you have an audiobook. You can just plug it in in like that half hour that you're driving to work or whatever. I totally get it. I get a lot done while I'm driving. Or I get a lot of listening of books done while I'm driving. So, yeah. All right. So as we talked about earlier, we read... The Devil in the White City. Mm-hmm. And the cover, this is what the cover says. The Devil in the White City. Murder, magic, and madness at the fair that changed America. And this is by Eric Larson. And the summary, we picked the summary from the back of the book. Mm-hmm. And it says, bringing Chicago circa... 1893 to Vivid Life, Eric Larson's spellbinding bestseller intertwines the true tale of two men. The brilliant architect behind the legendary 1893 World's Fair, striving to secure America's place in the world, and the cunning serial killer who used the fair to lure his victims to their death. Combining meticulous research with nail-biting storytelling, Eric Larson has crafted a narrative with all the wonder of newly discovered history and the thrills of the best fiction. Yeah, it really was the best fiction. Okay. So that is, I feel like that's a good synopsis of what the book is. For sure. Here is your very quick, maybe not so quick 30 second ish plot line. Do you want me to time you? (laughs) No. Because it'll probably be like 45 seconds to a minute. But we call it our we call it our 30 second plot line knowing it's not ever 30 seconds. That's our goal someday. <laughs> Are they, someday. That is our goal someday. The 30 second plot line is Eric Larson takes his nonfiction takes this tale and in a nonfiction form actually weaves together a really great story of Burnham who actually um, it's Daniel Burnham. He actually gets a team together and you actually find out why the world fair even exists, why Chicago is picked and not a different city. You figure out that a lot of this was basically just to kind of get back at the French for their world fair and for the Eiffel tower um, and it weaves together all the different moving parts that take it takes to get um, to the World Fair. In the middle of all of this, you also start to hear the story of H.H. H. Holmes, which is coined um, the first American serial killer, where he built his murder hotel. And it actually weaves together a lot of stuff from investigations, his own personal letters, his own his own memoir that he wrote in yeah. jail to get this the twisted tale of what actually happened with him. And something that we will probably talk about later, but I just want to hit upon is that the office that actually investigated him burnt down. So there's nothing left of his, the investigation of him except for like one random picture. That's so insane. Yeah. And so you just get this amazing magical Story. picture of 
yeah, the story of how the World Fair existed. It's, yeah, it was good. Yeah. So what was your initial impression? And I guess, I guess, like, we always ask who picked <laughs> this book. Um, I, I picked yeah, it a few months ago with the, the encouraging of Josie. Yeah. So. I'll also say, like, the reason why I wanted to pick this book is that this has been on my read list for a really long time. I never actually bought this book until we officially decided to read it. I moved to Chicago shortly after this book came out. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just with any city, but especially Chicagoans, we're especially proud of anything that has anything to do with Chicago. So everybody was raving about this book and it just never worked out that I read right. it until now. But it has been on my on my read list since then and I've had so many people suggest it to me and I am still meeting people who've never read it and now I'm like you have to read have this to read it. yeah 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 um yeah my initial impression I really enjoyed it um for some reason I, we touched on this a little earlier we thought it was fiction yeah <laughs> but it's not it's not fiction it's um non-fiction and actually like in the the very beginning of the book the author writes this is his first book that is nonfiction. He's he's written other books prior to this one that were fiction. So so that was like I was like oh um, so I was expecting more of a a story, but I really just enjoyed it. I loved the history of it. I loved learning about the background of the story. My first impression, like you said, I thought this was fiction. <laughs> um, and when I first read the author's note at the beginning where he talks about how this is actually a true story. And he even says, like, in bold, like, this is not fiction. Not fiction, yeah. Um, Where... He said anything in quotes came directly from a letter or memoir or some type of like document, newspaper, article, articles, whatever. And when I read that, it kind of made me a little hesitant because I was expecting to read a story, Mm. which don't get me wrong. You are you're absolutely reading a story. And the picture that Larson weaves yeah. By connecting all of this stuff is incredible. It's so, like, in my head, I felt like you I was there. standing in the middle of the World Fair being able to just see everything and look at everything. Yeah. And the amount of research that he would have had to do for this book is insane. It's immense. Immense just yeah. what he did. And the way he did it, because sometimes you read nonfiction stories or books and they're kind of bland because mm-hmm. it's just all the facts mm-hmm. and just all the information. He really told the story of these of it, it is mainly about two men, but as you as you learn right away, it's more than just two men. You learn mm-hmm. about Olmstead and you learn about Sullivan and all these other 
architects and painters and artists and like all these I didn't realize how many people were a part of this like the creation of the fair until this story we grew up in the wild west yeah we grew up in Wyoming where there's literally a town Buffalo Bill created and I learned stuff about Buffalo Bill in this book I don't think I ever knew yeah I didn't know he was a womanizer. <laughs> I didn't know he was a womanizer either. I also, I, for some reason, I just assumed that he was a part of the World Fair. Like, I didn't know that they told him no. Yeah. And so and he was like, all right, fine. I'm going to open up right next to you. Take that. And he actually was wildly more successful than he the was. actual fair. And, I mean, because the fair itself wasn't actually, you end up finding out through the whole thing that it actually was not really successful until the last month or month or two yeah. before it closed. They were actually going under, and they were like, this is a disaster. Disaster. While it was successful, it just wasn't, but there were so many other factors as to right. why it wasn't going well. And I, um, right. like, one of the factors was, they basically had their, what I would say was maybe America's, I have not, I I didn't get to sit down and um, do a quick Google search, but, and I know America has had other, like, great depressions or great recessions. Mm-hmm. Um, ob- obviously, the one that I think of the most is, like, the one from, like, the 1910s and 20s. Like, that's the one that really sticks in my mind I know a lot of people are like I I always think it's funny when people are like the Great Depression but they're talking about the one that happened like 10 years ago and I'm like no that wasn't that great well that was like a housing recession like yeah you think like I think the Great Depression I think of like the Black Friday or the the Black Tuesday in 29 and then like everything that happened in the 30s yeah but so the economy is always up and down. Yeah. I didn't realize that there was one in the ni- 1890s. I knew we had had others prior. I didn't realize that there was one in the early 1990s. Or 1890s. I'm sorry. Not 1990s. <laughs> the 1890s. And how much it just, it, like, they had railroad companies going under. They had banks going under. They had... um just a whole bunch of businesses just collapsing because weren't able to do what they were supposed yeah. to do. I mean, it was just, and like, and that was a huge part of the world's fair is that like Burnham was even like at one point, like this is bad. Like, mm-hmm. cause they're watching banks, banks just closing here and there and everywhere. And that, that has to be absolutely terrifying when you're trying you're trying to build this big, beautiful event that's supposed to bring money. Well, that and, I mean, you also have to think about the fact that they had a national fund for right. the World Fair in one bank. Mm-hmm. And all of these other banks are going down. You're like, what's going to happen to the bank that has all of our money in it? This is, this is what I loved about what Eric Larson did. I felt like I was being told a story 
that I had never heard before, even right. though I had heard a lot of this stuff before or read about a lot of this stuff before. He did it in a way where it was entertaining. It was intriguing. Yeah. I was so immersed into it that I felt like I could have been there. Yeah. But you had so many facts. Like, this is this is not, like, a lighthearted book. This is a dense, oh. information-filled book. It is. Like, I page has... You learn, you I mean, learn so page. much. I actually went to Audible and got the book on Audible, so I listened to it. So right. I've been done much earlier than Sheila on this book. Usually yeah. that's flipped. Um, <laughs> but, like, just listening to it, um, like, I will say, I feel like my experience of the book would have been extremely different if I didn't listen to it. Hmm. Part of me feels like I may have not enjoyed it as much if I read it because I feel like I would have gotten caught up in all of the facts and it would make me want to go look something up and I would put the book down and I probably would have gotten distracted with something else because I'm like that. And then I would have been like, oh, yeah, I have to go back and read this. Right. And so listening to it made me, like, focus, and it made me actually listen to everything and take everything in. Yeah. But one of the first things I I wrote about or made a note of is the fact that um, not – well, first of all, the whole beginning where he's actually on the Olympian um, boat at the same time when – who was it? Milton was on the Titanic – And that's actually where it opens up is Burnham is traveling across the Atlantic um, on the Olympian at the same time the Titanic goes down. And he actually he actually tries to get a telegram to his friend. And when he finds out what happens, it actually causes him to go write in a journal about this experience because they were the last two surviving people. But. When it actually talks about the fair and the lands and everything, one of the things that they talk about, the park where they were building this was swampland. Right. And they had to figure out how to build on this. And if it rained the slightest bit, it was so bad. And he even talks about how horses were falling to their bellies in the marshlands because of a rainstorm that just happened. And they were like... How are we going to build buildings on this when our horses are literally sinking? Well, I think we should kind of go back and touch on this. But, like, Chicago in general is just really bad um, ground. Like, it's very full of water. They've always had some issues um, with foundations. And Burnham and his partner, Root actually created a way, one of the popular ways to create a foundation that the the buildings can actually be on without too much, uh, how do I want to say it, like sinkage and... A lot of give, because you also yeah. have like wind, so they yeah. created a way to build these story. I mean, they created the first skyscrapers yeah. because they were able to figure this out. Not only that, um, 
I don't know if a lot of people know, but the fire from 1871, the Great Chicago Fire, horrible as that fire was, Mm -hmm. because that fire happened, they actually just took all the debris from the fire and basically spread it out over the swampy marshlands and created a strong foundation. And that's actually like Lakeshore Drive all along the coast of the lake, everything, uh, Michigan Avenue, all that stuff, it's literally over swampland. And the debris from the fire actually made it so they could build a lot of that. Yeah. So they were used, I mean, they were used to building on that type of land. But even in this area, I think it was even worse than they expected it to be. Because... They, I mean, they knew immediately that they would not be able to use any of the major building constructs that they would use, like Mm -hmm. all the marbles and the stone and all that. too heavy. All of it would have been way too heavy. So they found a new, a a new way to do everything and still make it look elegant and amazing. Yeah. I mean. That classic look that they were going for. Yeah. And. They had a lot of meetings about what the buildings were going to look like and what the fair was going to look like and where everything was placed. And it was very strategic with everything that they did. And it never would have worked if Burnham and his and his partner Roots, if they didn't have the rapport that they had with people. Yeah they probably wouldn't have had the chance taken on them. And they, I mean, they built a lot of buildings for Chicago. They did. Um, ultimately, in the end, you find out that they end up by building, I think it was like 27 major buildings for Chicago. Not all of them yeah. exist anymore. I think there's only like four that still do. Well, he did build the Flatiron Building in yeah. New York and then but the yeah, he, um, he Union, Union Station in D.C.? yeah. That what I remember I read. Um, he built. He definitely built Union Station and the Flatiron Building. And the Flatiron. So he went. To, he ended up going to other cities and building as well. I didn't they say something about San Francisco? I could be making that up. I feel like he went to uh, quite a few like major cities though. I think he did set something for San Francisco after the World's <laughs> Fair. Like the Flatiron. Yeah. Well, I want to say Flatiron Building and Union Station were before. Yeah. And then um, I want to say whatever he did in San Francisco, which I cannot remember off the top of my head. So I do remember something about San Francisco. Yeah. Is um, I want to say that was after everything. Yeah. But he I mean, I feel like he was pretty progressive with some of yeah. his thinking, though, because he they got a female architect. Totally. To well, to do the women's building. Yeah. Um, I don't remember. He was very specific about his his vision. He wanted the perfect yeah. landscape artist. He wanted the perfect muralist. He wanted the perfect architect for each building. Yeah. They I mean they put had people put in tons of bids and it was like it wasn't just like, "Oh yeah, you can build this great building." It was like, "Why do we need this building to do this in our right. fair?" He he really was ahead of his game. Like, so this is before he's a a contender for the world's fair he and root had a business and or not a business but an architect office and I, I have this quote or paragraph marked in my book and it says each man recognized and respected the other's skill 
The resultant harmony was reflected in the operation of their office, which, according to one historian, functioned with the mechanical precision of a slaughterhouse, an apt illusion given Burnham's close professional and personal association with the stockyards. But Burnham also created an office culture that anticipated that of businesses that would not appear for another century. He installed a gym. During lunch hour, employees played handball. Burnham gave fencing lessons. Root played impromptu recitals on a rented piano. The office was full of rushed work, Starrett said, but the spirit of the place was delightfully free and easy and human in comparison with other offices I had worked in. And I think that just goes to show, like, because him and Root had that kind of forward thinking, Mm -hmm. I think that's why the World's Fair was really kind of ahead of its time. Right. And I think it's why he was able to be so strong in his stance for things that he wanted and didn't want. For sure. It needs to be said that, and I honestly did not know this. Um... Chicago, I, so I knew Chicago wasn't the first thought for the for the World Fair. I knew mm-hmm. that. I did not know that it really came down between um, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., New York, and Chicago. Right. And the it, it was so hard for them to pick the city that it actually went to Congress. That's the part that I yeah. didn't know. I did not realize that this was actually, like, a Congress-voted, like, right. thing. Right, I didn't of, like, realize let's, that either. Let's build it in the city. And it was actually really fun. And I found this really funny as somebody who, as a Cubs, Cubs fan, can't like St. Louis. I thought it was really funny how he just kind of put in there, like, and nobody wanted it to be at St. Louis. <laughs> right. Um, St. Louis only had, like, four votes or something like that. Yeah, also, they didn't have this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Also, there's, like, a whole big thing about how Chicago changed the flow of the river to make everything literally flow down to St. Louis. So they have, like, all of our garbage. So it's kind of, like, a whole big mm-hmm. thing of, like, Chicago right. is, like, literally dumping on St. Louis. Which um, I was, like, what? I, like... When I read that thing about the river, I was mm-hmm. I was kind of blown away that they did that ages ago. I didn't even mm-hmm. know that you, honestly, I didn't realize that you really, I mean, I knew you probably could, but, you know, like, whenever they did it a hundred and some years ago, like, right. that just seems like a really big feat. <laughs> yeah. In this right. day and age. But to I do mean, that back but it's then. also like, why would they think about that? Because there was a lot of things with like illnesses and things like that where people just yeah. didn't even think about that type of stuff sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, people thought it should have, like, some people thought it should have been in DC because they were the nation's capital. Yeah. A lot of people thought it should go belong in New York because yeah. New York is the center of culture. It's the melting pot. It's the melting pot. It's the center of culture. Um, it's where all the big things were already happening and people literally were already there. Yeah. And people, I mean, in the quote Sheila read, they were like, these guys were like a slaughterhouse. I mean, that was literally the impression that people had of Chicago. Chicago was not yet like the great second city or like any of that stuff. They literally were just like pig slaughters, like butchers. 
factories. It was not anything great. Or they didn't think it could be anything great. And I think with Burnham fighting so hard for his vision and already being ahead of his time, if if it didn't have if they didn't have that backing for Chicago, there's no way it would have been in Chicago. Right. I agree. Yeah. We we just keep talking about the fair. I know. Like, because it's so book. I was trying to I was trying to think about how I wanted to go into H. H. Holmes and, and all of that stuff. I feel like you have to set up the World Fair though to go into all the rest of it. Right. You have to go into like the fight of how much they took this. I mean, they literally were trying to be better than New York, France, France New York, and, or proved to New York that they could do it. Right. I mean, there was actually this, I, there was another part and I was laughing hysterically with this because Chicago is not always known for like their food and wine, but they even like <laughs> said in there, like people were telling the elite that were like coming to Chicago that, be careful, their food isn't as good. Like, their wine's not as good. Yeah. They don't know how to properly, like, frappe the wine, and <laughs> they're not going to give you the best cuts of meat and all this yeah. stuff. And it, I still feel like it's one of those things where there are so many restaurants in Chicago. We have a ton of, like, Michelin-starred restaurants and chefs, and we're – probably not as prominent in the place that New York is, but we're right right up there. But I also feel like there's a lot of other cities that are just like right on the tails of, of New York in that sense. But the fact that this was still happening in 1890 and it's something that's still happening now. I just found so hilarious because it's 130 years later. Like, okay guys. Right. (laughs) So it just made it really funny. I, I just found it really funny that they several, several, several times, even when they were debating about which city to to mm-hmm. have it go to, their biggest goal that they just kept saying over and over again, no matter who it was, you have to be better than France. just have to be better than France. We just have to be better than the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. And it's. You just don't think about, like, when those things were necessarily constructed, mm-hmm. that it would have just happened to have them be like, no, this is a major thing in the world. We have to be better than this. Yeah. Because we, now it's just, oh, it's just there. Like, the fair, right. it just happened. The Eiffel Tower, it's just there. Like, it's just, this, there. It yeah. just happened. Another thing I didn't realize with the fair, the World's Fair, is well, when they had they they were behind because they were waiting for like the commissioners and everybody to be like, yes, you can hire these people and okay, yeah, you can have that piece of land. Like they they got held up because like the the people in charge or who were trying to be in charge just were like they sat on their butts arguing about stuff and finally they decided on Burnham and then they wouldn't like. But he gave them his ideas, and then they sat on that and sat on that. And then when they finally had a chance, like when they finally decided, it was like 18 months or whatever to to create a, a World's Fair. And then they're all like, and then they had buildings collapse from snow and collapse from windstorms. 
and then another snowstorm. Um, they just had I issue mean, after issue. Like, you're just reading this, and you're like, oh, my God, I feel so bad for him because well, it was just I, like everything was happening. It just kept happening. And they had, they would, they they lost, like, so Burnham's partner, he passed away. Another, they, they had three or four people die that were, like, integral parts of the, yeah, of the development of this. And that affected everything. Then then you had the unions on strike. Mm -hmm. And then the strikers were beating up the other people who were coming in. Yeah. And they were like, don't take our job, but we're not going to do it. Right. And then you had that. But even, like, with the weather, like, you're talking about the snow and everything else. They, one thing that I really felt, I think I also felt this because um, Chicago's had some of the, one of the most wet Mays and Junes in, like, history this year. It has been raining so much. So every time they talked about the rain, I would be driving in my car and they'd be talking (laughs) about the rain and it'd be like downpouring. I'd be like, oh, I feel this Burnham. Like, (laughs) I got you with the rain. There were, I mean, my street on the side of me, I couldn't drive down it because it was like flooding. Oh, my gosh. And um, I had a friend walk out their house. They like sent a video on Snapchat on their story and it was like all I wanted to do today was go to the gym and the entire street in front of him was flooded up to people's like windows and people were like sitting on top of their cars like just waiting because they couldn't do anything right and so I'm like reading this and I'm just like all the rain like I just feel that I felt all the rain yeah I'm right there with it I, I yeah you get it (laughs) <laughs> Except for you're not building a fair. <laughs> I am not building a fair that's already behind, and I only have 18 months to do it. Right, but, like, they just, they had issues. They had so many issues. And then, like, the, the you know, the collapse of the economy, like, that didn't help. I yeah. mean, they just had so many things. But they also had a lot of um, wonderful things. Yeah. You know, like. We have incandescent light bulbs because of it or like those were introduced and used at the fair. And so, you know, that's that's a big part of our our life now. Um, Well, Disney's father actually worked as one of the I think a carpenter, I think is what he was. Mm -hmm. And when you read some of like the ideas, like one of Burnham's ideas was a main central entrance gate. Yeah. What does Disneyland and Disney World have? Yeah. One entrance where people can only come in and come out. Yeah. And, it, but but it's to bring you in so you see the site that they want to see. So some of these ideas that they had were, I, 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 I truly believe that somehow Disney's father had heard this idea because it ended up that the the fair didn't end up having the one central entrance. The the committee wouldn't let him do it. Yeah. But I'm sure it was talked about. And so for somebody like Disney, when he finally did 
gets around to creating his his parks. You know, I, I see a lot of like Burnham's ideas in a lot of our um, our our amusement parks all over the the world and country. Yeah, um, we have writers and painters that went at like so like Wizard of Oz might have been uh, inspired by. Right. by I actually this. wrote that down because Wizard of Oz is really it's, big for both Sheila and I. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, I don't live super close to it, but I don't live very far, like maybe a 15-minute drive. There's actually Oz Park here in Chicago where they have statues of, like, all the characters around the park. And um, Frank Baum, who wrote it, he lived down the street from there. And so it's supposedly, like, a park that he frequented, like, all this different stuff. I could totally see that, but I wrote down, I actually wrote down a list and this was just some of the stuff that they mentioned about things that came out in, during the fair, juicy fruit, the gum, shredded wheat, the cereal, which made me laugh so hard because I love shredded wheat and they were like, this was disgusting. Nobody was going to, it was not going to last and it's still around. Yeah, they were like, it's shredded cardboard. (laughs) Um, This is a huge Chicago staple, Paps Blue Ribbon beer. And the reason it won, and that's why it's called Paps Blue Ribbon now. Yeah, because it was just like like a Paps beer, and it was Paps Blue Ribbon. Do you want it? I I didn't know anything about Paps Blue Ribbon. Like, I know the name. I've seen and heard it for years and years and years, you know. I always thought it won, like, some county fair whenever. <laughs> no, yeah. it won the, the World's Fair in 1893, I know. folks, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really funny because there's, um, like, a really big thing in a lot of Chicago bars is they do – I can't remember what kind of combo it's called – but it's a PBR and JMO combo where you can go. There's certain nights you can go into certain bars and you'll get like a PBR beer and a shot of Jameson for like six dollars. That sounds horrible. It's a big combo, but um, the you, <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't drink PBR, but I do. I have done my fair share of shots of JMO. You got the. This was the first time a long-distance telephone was introduced. Mm -hmm. This was the first movie picture that was introduced. Mm -hmm. Um, Lightning from Tesla was created because Tesla was at at the World Fair. Edison, Tesla were both there. Um, This was the first time anybody saw or heard of a zipper. Zipper. Isn't that crazy? This was the first introduction to any type of electric kitchen. Mm-hmm. Where there would have been a refrigerator, a stove, um, a toaster, like anything electric that plugs in. This was they actually had a display of a full functioning electric kitchen. Yeah. Um, Aunt Jemima pancakes were introduced. That's right. Um, Cracker Jacks were introduced. And for the life of me, I wrote down this one and I'm like, why am I just. The vertical file. What is a vertical file? Like a file cabinet? I don't know. Now I remember that specific. I forget that specific one, but I wrote it down. But all of that was inspired. And then it was like Oz was inspired. All the paintings that have been expired, inspired. Um, the future, Lincoln Memorial. Future, right. Future architecture. 
um, the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, all of this stuff, it just did, like, this one thing that created all of this. Everything. It's so insane to think about that it all just happened in one place. Like, yeah. the Ferris wheel was created. Ferris wheel. Um, and, like, how much of it, like, how how every fair that we you've probably been to and almost every amusement park that you've probably been to has some sort of Ferris wheel. I mean, right. And you look at a Ferris wheel now and you don't even think about it. But this literally was, like, people were, they were mocking this. Yeah. This invention they were like this will never work and they were like they like burnham who's an architect who understands things created a way to build skyscrapers right (laughs) in the foundation of a building was like so you tell me a skinny rod like a skinny metal rod is gonna (laughs) attach to here and here it's gonna be attached to here and here and there's gonna be a hanging gondola like, car yeah like car seat or gondola or whatever they wouldn't have called it a car seat yet but some type of like right well and these these like div- like wagon or like yeah platform or whatever and just so people know like these <clears throat> they had like 30 some or 40 some this ferris wheel was ginormous and yeah. it's not like a two-person seat it's it's like a gondola um, like, you know, like when you go up a mountain gondola yeah. and they had a lunch counter in it and it took 20 minutes to go around in one rotation. Well, and they, they went also, around twice. They, they around also, twice. it was like a steam engine that they had yeah. to like, that ran it, that they had to actually like bury underneath. And then yeah. the engine was like completely off site separate from it. It was way it. far away. Well, because they didn't, if something happened, they didn't want it to happen like right in the fair if right. like it like blew up or whatever. It was. But it literally like they did like one car at a time and then it was like the second car mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it was all of them and it was this anomaly and nobody understood like really the physics of it. And they even talk about how the first time people were just jam packed in this thing yeah that nobody knew what to expect and they even talk about how one man like thought he could do it and then started freaking out and like trying to break the glass to get out he couldn't get out he couldn't handle it just the the thought of like that rotation up and when they were coming back down he started to calm down right but when they went back up again, like, he started they went back up again. again, and he started freaking out again. He forgot that it went twice, and there were literally people on the car who were like wrestling him. My favorite part about that to, like, story. Calm down. My favorite part about that story is this woman takes off her skirt and wraps it around this man that's freaking out. Like so, she undresses herself essentially, which is. Uh, a big no-no in 1893 for women okay right and then she holds this man and talks to him and is soothingly talking to him and calms him down like nobody else could calm him down but she she essentially wrapped him up like a baby (laughs) and talked to him and the thing is the thing is is like um sometimes And I learned this when my son was going to OT that sometimes holding people that are having um, like 
autistic children that are having like a hard time, like sometimes just holding them and like hugging them calms them down. It's kind of like your weighted blanket that yeah. Andy and I got you for Christmas. Like right. there's something about that pressure <laughs> that just calms you down. And right. she, she knew what to do. She knew right. what to do. And she put her big heavy skirt on him. You go girl. Yeah. But I mean like they it was just such an anomaly. It's like that was just one of my favorite things about this yeah. book is that we have all of this stuff in our life and we don't even think twice about it. And mm-hmm. like you said, like Ferris wheel, there's a Ferris wheel at like every fair. There's you know, these rides, like these electric rides at every fair and it's like they actually were not ever existent before. Like they had people come up with this stuff and build it. It wasn't yeah. just, like, Oh look, this is happening. Um, and this was but massive. Was, That's the crazy thing is like yeah. how massive it was. I mean, it was pretty huge. It was in Chicago for a really long time and then they rebuilt it. And now this one's even bigger. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, they changed, they definitely changed the contract of it a little bit, but it was, the the one from that but yeah um, I mean it's just it's just so amazing to me like I love learning where things come from I remember in college we had to choose something that we'd use in the everyday and we had to find the history of like when it when it happened and it was the same thing. Like I, we had to take a common phrase and like figure out like basically where it came from and then perform a speech in my public speaking class about it. And I chose the phrase, um, that's the best thing since sliced bread. And nobody ever thinks about the fact that we can just go to a market and have sliced bread. Like how many people walk by packets of juicy fruit and they don't even think about it. And it's like, Sliced bread didn't come out until like the twenties. I know. I was like, and I think it was, it's only like um, yeah, the and 20s. It's, like, it's only maybe a hundred years I, old. That now. was like thirty years after an electric kitchen came out. Did sliced bread come out? You know, and so it's just to think <laughs> about when this stuff actually came out. I it seriously just made me long for a time that will never like we get it in our own way now it'll never be the same I mean Sheila and I before we started actually recording tonight were like Sheila was like man why don't we have a world fair like this it would be so awesome and it's and one of the things that we were talking about is it would be so amazing and we have such so much easier access to get get there I mean one of the things that so it they were cutting the deadline so close to build the fair and complete it. Yeah. Where the, the, the Ferris wheel that was literally the talk of the fair, the biggest hit, it didn't even completely get constructed until like two or three months after the fair opened. Yeah. Because the fair was losing money. They were like, we need a hundred thousand people a day to show up to this fair to to make ends meet. Yeah. And at three months, they were not hitting anywhere close yeah. to that. And they it was knew- 51 days. It opened up 51 days after opening day was yeah. when the Ferris wheel opened up and, and had riders. Uh, well, and I don't think it should go without saying that part of the reason why they had such a heavy time constraint 
for the fair to open is that they wanted it to happen on the anniversary of Christopher Columbus landing, right. which I did not know that that's why it's called the they, Columbus fair. Yeah. I don't think I even knew that it was the Columbus fair. Right. I think I've only ever heard it called like the world fair, the world acquisition. I don't think I ever heard it. I don't, I'm, or at least I have not connected that it was the World Columbian Exposition or whatever. I've never heard it called anything else but the Chicago World's Fair. Um, right. So maybe a hundred, or not a hundred, because it's been longer than that, 120 years ago, um, that's what it was called. You know, the the, the Columbian right. Chicago which, World's Fair or whatever. Just, it just got shortened or whatever, yeah. which... But, um, I mean, that was why they were on such a time constraint was because they had to open up for the 400-year anniversary of that. Yeah. And, I mean, the other thing that you get from this, well, to go back, like, that's why they had the time constraint. I mean, Burnham was looking at this Ferris wheel because they opened things up without it being 100% complete. Yeah. And they just shut off, like, certain areas and did certain things. But he saw the Ferris wheel and what a great attraction that was. And all he could think was, if we would have had this two months ago, we would have made this much more money. Well, right. But the funny thing about that is the Ferris, George Washington something. I can't remember his third name. Ferris. He Uh actually brought his idea three times to the World Fair Burnham and their committees before it was finally approved. Like he was shot down twice. Yeah. And he, cause they just, they were like, no, we need something grander. And they just didn't see this working. Well, th- it was that. And then they, I think they were also like, people wouldn't ride that. Right. <laughs> like, that's scary. How are you yeah. going to make a wheel go around? Well, and that's, like, him as an architect, it just didn't make sense in his head, where he was, like, he didn't get the physics of it, where he's, like, he literally says, like, I I think it was a wife, uh, a wife, I think it was a letter to his wife, Margaret, where he says, I don't understand how these skinny metal rods are going to connect to these things. Yeah. And rotate without it falling apart. Sure. He just didn't, he just didn't see the vision. And Ferris's wife was like, no, you keep going. We're, we got, yeah. it's like, you, you're going to do this and it's going to be successful. So it's just really funny, like, the different views of everything. Yeah. But, um, I mean, something else that I did not know came from the World Fair, um, which talking about how it needed to open for Columbus, the Columbus Day anniversary, reminded me yeah. of was actually the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Um, They wanted something to commemorate this amazing day. Yep. And they thought, oh, my gosh, how amazing would it be for all of the children in the entire United States to learn this To do one thing. They were like, let's have all the children do one thing to show how amazing America Mm -hmm. is and all of this stuff is. And they were like, how do we get it? There's no way you can get all the children anywhere, like, blah, blah, blah. So they were, like, trying to figure out how to do it. And then somebody wrote the Pledge of Allegiance, and they had everybody recite it 
on the first day, mm-hmm. like, the first time, and now yep. people it's, see it like it's daily. Part of our well, and another thing, um, it didn't come from the World's Fair, but it came from I, I want to say it probably came from Buffalo Bill's um, performance. He started every performance with um, the Star Spangled Banner, mm-hmm. which is now our national anthem. Right. And what what do every game or sport sport event what happens? Right. The national anthem. And I mean the Wild West show with Buffalo Bill. I mean mm-hmm. this was like a sporting event in its yeah. day. Oh yeah. It was it was horse riding. It was spectacle. It was gunslinging. It was, it was everything. Uh, the the best variety sports show that was in its time. I mean, he literally toured the world with the show. Yeah. And that's the other thing that's so funny about this. Like you mentioned about Burnham, you mentioned about Ferris being turned down by Burnham and his and his company. Burnham also had to look outside of his gate of the World Fair because Buffalo Bill's show sold out every mm-hmm. single okay. show. There was at least 18,000 people every single day at the Buffalo Bill show. Huge. 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 They had Native American, like, chiefs. Like, Native American chiefs. They had Annie Oakley. They had Buffalo Bill himself. They had all of these people Mm-hmm. who literally fought in the Wild West and were from the Wild West. I mean, this was, I'm telling you, like, I was, like, reading this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, that's, like, those are my people, you know, like, thinking about that's, all this stuff, because that's, like, what we grew up with. Yeah, so, that's what we grew up with, knowing about. Yeah, yeah, and, I mean, I know a lot about Annie Oakley. I have seen the musical. My sister was in the musical. I mean, I grew up, like, loving Annie Oakley. Right. But it's so it's so funny because he had to not only see the success of the Ferris wheel, like we should have started the sooner. Right. He had to see the success of a show that he was like, no, you can't see it. We, we said no to you. We, we told you no. All Bill. he did every single day was see that that show was packed. And if he would have put it inside the fair, they would have had to buy a ticket to get in the fair. And then they would have had to buy a ticket to get into the show. Yeah. And then Buffalo Bill just kept, like, sticking it to them because they were like, let's do a children's day and get orphans out here. And he was like, like, we, like, Burnham, that was a a promotion idea for the World Fair was, like, let's make it free for the children. And Burnham was like... Children's tickets are already half price. We cannot afford to do this. Yeah. And so Buffalo Bill was like, we'll do it. Not only will I let you in free, (laughs) if you're a child, you get free candy. He helped pay for like some of the train rides. Yeah. He paid free free train rides to bring them all in. Um, Free train rides, which was one of the biggest contributors for why the fair was not successful because the railroads would not discount the train tickets to get to Chicago. They were so expensive. Farmers weren't able to do it. And then the fair was closed on Sundays. And that was the one day of the week that a lot of farmers and a lot of rural people would have had to actually come in and travel and do all of this. 
Or just working class in general in Chicago. Yeah, working class in general. Like, that was the one day that they would have been able to go. And they were like, no, we're closed on Sundays. And that happened because the... A certain group went to Congress, basically, and was like, oh, no, you can't have the World's Fair open on Sunday. Like, yeah. it, and, and so that was, like, mandated by, you know. And they were, they were preaching, like, preachers, pastors, priests <laughs> were preaching Go that Buffalo fair. Bill was, yeah. like, doing all of these depraved things, like, this sinful things because he had a show on Sundays and then Buffalo Bill's response to it was just to, like, do something funny and just be like, okay. okay, well, whatever, I guess I'm a sinner. And he would just, like, do something in the audience. And it was just like, well, we're just going to stick it to them. And it's like yeah. people loved it because they couldn't go to church, but they were going to the Buffalo Bill show. Right. Like, Buffalo Bill, like, his whole character in oh. this book, except for, like, all the womanizing and all of that stuff. Right. His whole attitude and his whole, like, laissez-faire, like, okay, you don't want to do that? Watch what I'm going to do. It just made me laugh so hard. Yeah, yeah. He's, he he was definitely a I-don't-care-what-you-think type person. So. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I don't know. It was just so crazy. But then it's also, like, the spectacle shows, like, the opening. Mm-hmm. All of the people who were there for the opening day they had royals they had congress they had the president i mean the president wasn't even in like the first carriage he was in like the fourth or something like that yeah he wasn't he was like way back there they had like the mayor of chicago yeah Uh, they had all these people they had the last remaining descendant of christopher columbus at the opening day of the fair some like it Archduke was, or something like that. Yeah. Was he an Archduke or was he something else? I think it was an Archduke. I want to say it was an Arch- there was there was a lot of like dukes and lords and uh yeah royal and some royalty thrown out there like the Spanish princess who the 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 queen was actually like dethroned or something like that. Yeah. Um. So she wasn't really like she's still royalty, but she's not really. They're not right. like on the thrones or anything. Um. So yeah, it was just they they did they had a lot of really big important people from all over the world come to the fair. Yeah. Um. But the sad thing was was throughout the story, Eric Larson is telling you about like this this one guy. He's kind of like. It, He's a little psychotic. Like, you you know there's some mental issues with him from the kind of very beginning. And you just, you know something's going to happen. And um, two days before the the fair is supposed to close and before their big, like, final goodbye celebration, this guy goes and assassins the the mayor. Who's Chicago mayor, Harrison. He's very popular with the working class. Mm-hmm. He's been mayor five times. Or was that the sixth time? Somewhere around there. I think it was I the mean, there. the name Harrison is all over Chicago. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's just a very popular man. And he's murdered by basically a fanatic. Like, this guy had been his fan. And then he felt that he was wronged by Harrison, even though Harrison 
had no idea who this man right. was. Well, and part of why part of why he was able to assassinate him and part of why Harrison was so popular was that he was very much for the people and about yeah. the people. And he allowed people to show up at his residence. Yeah, people he didn't know. And just the they could show up and they could just be like, look, I have this grievance. I need to talk to you about it. And he yeah. would listen to them. And yeah. they were down to dinner and the housekeeper was like, come back. And he was like, okay, fine, I'll come back. And he did. And then it happened and his son and his daughter were in the house. And yeah, it was so. So the the last day of the fair, which was supposed to have this really great performance with the the ships coming in and a bunch of yeah. other stuff. It all got canceled and it was essentially a funeral. Yeah, it ended up being a funeral. So he, you know, uh, there, there's just there's so much to this, all the little stories with it. I know. I mean, there was just so much spectacle because it was like the 4th of July fireworks. Yeah. Like they what? were, fireworks are, one, are amazing. But it, it's so bewildering to me how they pack, like, all the, the powder and everything in it to make all the designs when it shoots off in the sky. Right. Because these weren't fireworks where it's just going to shoot up and it's just going to, like, fan out and make a flower that goes. I mean, they were creating pictures in the sky. Like the American flag. Um, George Washington. I think George Washington. They. Um, while the fireworks were shooting off into the sky, they were dropping bombs into Lake Michigan. So yeah. the water was splashing and like, it was, <laughs> I was like, Oh my God. Like, and the thing is, is how they, they did fireworks back then was like people ran around lighting them. It, it's not like it is today where we get a push a button and it's all like synchronized right. and timed. Like it was very, very dangerous what these gentlemen were we're doing yeah. yeah the fourth of july fireworks was i was like wow yeah <laughs> that would have been pretty amazing to see especially back then where they don't have what we have today if that makes mm-hmm. sense where everything is kind of new and exciting when something's a little bit different or extravagant so yeah um, i feel I mean, like oh go ahead no go ahead well, I was going to say, I feel like maybe we should go on to well, really the quickly, HHO. No, go ahead. I say do want to, you but ultimately, the I mean, there's so much stuff you could say about the fair. We're not even, like, getting close to everything that you could say about the fair. But one of the things wasn't still even with all of this stuff the fireworks and the fanfare and everything it still was not going to be a successful fair Mm. it wasn't until what was the date october it was like the beginning of October. october 9th it was a monday morning they had finally started getting the railroads to like reduce pricing. Mm-hmm. They've got they got some other stuff to happen so people could come. And on Monday, October 9th, 1893, Frank Millet has had de- designated it as Chicago Day. 
So a lot of places in Chicago were shut down because they made it a holiday. Right. And all of these people started coming. And one gate had recorded 60,000 paid admissions just in the morning sales. Yeah. And that was just one of the gates. It had been about one-fifth. On an ordinary day, they would do about one-fifth of that Mm -hmm. at just one gate. Then eventually they ended up realizing that there had been an estimate of about 300,000. And that was more than any other day's total. And they had just, they had figured out like back in July, they needed a hundred thousand people to come every single day to be successful. This is now October and they have never done anything close to 60,000 in a day. And it just keeps going. And all of a sudden, like, Millet's, like, they're talking about how all these people just are coming and how all of this stuff is happening. They expected Chicago Day to be this huge thing. And so they made, they figured out how much food to bring extra in for, into Jackson Park for this. And it was, like, 4,000 4, half barrels of beer Mm-hmm. 15,000 gallons of ice cream, 40,000 ga- uh, pounds of meat. The cooks built 200,000 ham sandwiches. They brewed 400,000 cups of coffee. Mm-hmm. They just didn't expect any of this. And I believe... They ran out of food. Well, they did run out of food, but the World Fair for Paris had the world record at 397,000 people mm-hmm. in one day. Right. So this, they were talking about all this different stuff. And there was a lot of stuff that happened in this time as well. Like on the same day, there was lost children. <laughs> there was, um, My five, favorite people, part. five people were killed in or yeah. near the fair. Yeah. Um, a woman lost her foot yeah. when searching a crowd and she got knocked from a train platform and George Ferris was riding his wheel that day and he looked down at the fair and he's quoted as saying, there must be a million people down there. Yeah. The fireworks began at eight o'clock. It was just as extravagant as they thought. It first featured the great fire of 1871, including an image of Miss O'Leary's cow kicking over a lantern. The night boomed and hissed for the, or for the finale of the fair's pyrotechnicians launched 5,000 rockets all at once into the black sky over the lake. 5,000. Like, this is just insane to me. Like, the panic that I think of if somebody was somewhere and heard 5,000 rockets going off at the same time, the panic that would ensue in Chicago today, I think, is (laughs) crazy. But at the end of the day, they started collecting all the silver. All They started counting all the tickets. And... He Ferris had nearly gotten it right in that single day. Seven hundred and thirteen thousand six hundred and forty six people had paid to enter Jackson Park. Only thirty one thousand fifty nine, which is four percent, were children. Another thirty seven thousand three hundred and eighty visitors had entered using a pass bringing the total admission for the day to seven hundred and fifty one thousand. 26 people more people than had attended any single day of any peaceable 
event in history. The Tribune argued that the only greater gathering was the masses of Xerxes' army over the five million souls in the 5th century B.C. So they ended up ultimately shattering the Paris record. Yeah. They just continued to get all of the people coming in. And the fair ultimately ended up being a huge success. Yeah. The last month. The, the last, last couple, month. Like the, the last, last couple weeks. weeks. Couple the weeks, last yeah. weeks. So it's just like all of that. And I love this one line. It was like the Windy City had prevailed. Yeah. Which is all that they really wanted. Like, one, that's all anybody on any of the committees wanted. They just they wanted, wanted the U.S. to be successful. And then Burnham and his counterparts wanted Chicago to be successful. They right. wanted to prove that they were the people that they could to handle it. it and could do it. And it's just, oh, I just want to go to this fair. I know. I know. I want to I... be there. On Chicago Day. I want to be there through all of this stuff. I just want to be there. So I went down the rabbit hole of like what's left of the fair in Chicago. It's very, very little. And it's really sad. And there is a part in the book where, um, so basically after the fair, everything closes and um, all the workers that had been working for the fair they lost their jobs and they had no jobs out in what they called the black city, which actually I think we should touch on this because I didn't realize it until I read this book that the reason it was called the white city was because they had decided to paint all the buildings white. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's called the white city. So they called the rest of Chicago, the black city. (laughs) So all of them after the, the fair closed, the white, White City closed, essentially. Everybody's sent back out to the Black City. And now there's, like... Like, Chicago felt some of the ramifications of the economic collapse. But they didn't feel it as much because they had the fair. Yeah. The fair was creating an economy, you know? And so when it closed, these people that didn't really ever have any effects from it were now affected by it. They were homeless. Yeah. They were, they had no money. Everything had changed. And um, eventually people started moving into the the city or the white city, the fair area. And then in, I want to say, it was like, was it Christmas time or was it six months later? I want to say it was like six uh. months later. I have to, I can't, I didn't write that down. I don't know why I didn't write it down. But um, a few months later, a fire broke out. Basically, the next day, almost everything was gone. There's a few things that were left, but most of it was was gone. The So the Wooded Island is still around. The fine arts is permanent. That's what it was. I'm like, I know what it mm. is. The Fine Arts Building is still there. Um, it's now the Museum of Science and Industry. There really isn't much left. I did find that, like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember who it was, but some man found the an old ticket booth, and he took it, and he put it in his yard, and it was he made it a playhouse for his kids. Mm-hmm. And this is, like, a long time ago. But the house, the house and the, the little ticket booth – are still around. Um, so, but there really isn't much left. And it's just so 
Right. It's sad and like devastating to me that like this amazing thing is is gone. But they even talked about like jokingly kind of like after the fair was over, like how they were gonna burn it down and how they were mm. gonna demolish it. Which was just I'm like you put so much time and effort and you wanna get rid of it. I didn't understand it, but okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, to go back the Palace of Fine Arts it was transformed into a permanent structure that now houses the Museum of Science and Industry. That's what I said. Oh, did you say the Museum of Science and Industry? Yeah. Oh, sorry. That's all right. I forgive you. I heard, no, I remember <laughs> hearing the first part of it where you were like, it was a permanent structure. I did not hear you say Museum of Science and Industry. Sorry. It's all right. I forgive you. <laughs> no, but listen to me. I said it. I don't. <laughs> We could just go on and on and on and on and on about the fair, and we actually already have. So let's go to H.H. H. Holmes. H.H. H. Holmes. I. Oh the, here's this, the, this book. It had him, but there's not as much in it as I, of him in it as I really thought there not. would be. There's really not. It, it's so mostly the, about the fair. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that I like. We're we're basically dividing this one book into two books because there is two stories in it. Yeah. But I think it needs to be said that you get pieces of both stories throughout the whole thing. It is. It's like a chapter of they try. The yeah, he tries to do a really good job of a timeline. Yeah. So it's like this happened in in eighteen ninety two. Yeah. And this is what H.H. H. Holmes is doing in 1892. Yeah, he did a really good job of correlating um, um, the, the two uh, timelines or the timelines yeah. for the two, the two, the two gentlemen. Honestly, I kind of feel like he could have gone into a lot more detail of like the murders and stuff like that. But I felt like the detail that he gave was also very perfect yeah but part of me wonders if that's because I've already heard so much about H.H. Holmes Mm -hmm. in like other podcasts or reading other things that I wonder if like part of it was just like me filling in some of the stuff he gives a lot he gives a lot of detail there's a ton of information that you get from him right and um he even says um, I think it's at the end I was listening to some of the acknowledgments that it was not easy for him to find information on Holmes because it just yeah. doesn't really exist. And a lot of what he gets was from Holmes himself Yeah, because he felt like he like Holmes was very cunning. He's, he was very, very narcissistic, sly, very narcissistic. One of the things I guess I didn't, one of the things that I got from Holmes, from Larson's Holmes, that I guess Mm -hmm. I never really translated in anything else I had read or heard was how charming he was. Yeah. He's kind of a, uh, he was like 1893 Ted Bundy. Yes. Um, You know, very much. Charming and, but I, I mean, like, investigators yeah. would go talk about him. They weren't even talking about murder. They would go investigate his fraud. They thought they had him on yeah. insurance fraud. And then they, they'd leave and they'd... They had no clue that the murder was happening. They yeah. thought 
they were investigating him because of insurance fraud and other stuff. Like, they were... Every time they investigated him and there was a witness that talked about him or whatever, they'd be like, have you seen this man? And it was always, like, a swooning, like, the handsome gentleman with the blue eyes. The stunning oh, blue yeah. eyes. The I blue remember eyes. him. Like, this is not a person. Like, I guess in my head I just kind of, like, put him as a figure that would kind of, like, not be noticeable. Kind of, like a wallflower not really stick out wouldn't do anything to stick out and then he just kind of was very manipulative with the people that he did attach to and it's like people remembered him they knew him Mm-hmm. He was stunning. He was charming. He was handsome. I know. I know. He, he was handsome. He at least gave the air of being very successful, having a lot of money, and well, yeah, well off. And and uh-huh. then he would even be like, "Oh, my uncle, the Lord in England." Like he he knew how to tell a story that people believed. Right. It was, like, just believable that they wouldn't ask questions, but Mm -hmm. allowed him access to places. Right. And I guess I just did not realize that. And I always call his hotel, like, the murder hotel. Right. I did not know the name of his hotel was, like, the World Fairs Hotel. Yeah. I I didn't realize that until this book that he had named it the World's Fair Hotel. Because you always hear Murder Castle, sorry, Murder Castle or Murder House. Yeah, Murder Hotel. Murder Hotel. Like, those three, I'd say those three names are what you'll hear a lot with H.H. Holmes is hit, and that's what it is. And, man, did he have so many aliases and how he just worked all the... I think you read about, like, four, three or four aliases that he had at least, and they think he had more than that. Well, he he was, he was just... The way he would handle contractors, the way he Mm -hmm. handled, I mean, he had the two sisters from Texas, but he was, like, he was smart, because he would be like, here, write this, like, write your address, and write this letter, and then he would, like, send it to them, yeah. And it would just be like, everything's wonderful. I'm going to do this. And, and I mean, like, go and kill him. But he, like, definitely held out his time because, like, with the two sisters, like, he had the one sister there and the other and one came to visit and was, he convinced her, oh, I'm going to take you to keep us to Europe. Yeah, I'm going to take you to Europe, and you're going to go to an art school, and we're going to develop this, and I'm going to pay for it, and it's great, and it's fine, and mm-hmm. I don't, that was one thing that I found incredibly sad, is when Larson describes the trunks just sitting at the train station, like, never picked up. Right. I don't know why that made me so sad, Yeah, but... That made me almost more sad than actually listening about the murder. Yeah. I don't know if that makes me very demented or what that makes me. I have no idea. No, I don't think so. But I think it's it's just, like, 
there's a way to process it. Like, you're like, yeah, they got murdered. They were killed. Like, yeah, that happened. This horrible person did this horrible thing. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the aftermath of all of it, like the fact yeah. that these trunks made it to Chicago and then got sent back. And the one aunt who knew about the sisters going there together mm-hmm. had no reason to even think Right. That these trunks would be coming back. That it was just so like. Something happened. They, you know, like, like she would never. Like she would have never have even thought to go do that. And it was just like this person's stuff is just like nothing and forgotten. It was so sad to me. Yeah. It, it, well, I mean, I don't, I don't think that says anything about you. I think it's, you know, it shows you that like it's sad that they could have been forgotten i mean the aunt eventually did start asking questions and get like mm-hmm. and got a detective involved and whatnot but you know it and uh, and that's what happened to a lot of those families of the women that h.h H. holmes um murdered he you know the families <coughs> knew that they had stayed but they were staying at his his house or his hotel. I mean, and then they would just disappear. Or he would say, "Oh, they got married or something." And right. then, then the the police or the detectives would come and they talk to him, and they have no, they're not even invo- interested in him. Like they have no idea. They're just like, "Well, when was the last time you saw her?" And what did she say? And he, so he was totally like well, this is awesome. Right. I, like he, it, it did not concern him when detectives came and talked to him because he knew they weren't even thinking of well, him. And part of you or like part of thinking about mm-hmm. all of this is how, besides the fact that this world fair was going on and all of this stuff was happening, there's a little part of you that's just kind of like, how did the police not see? How did they not get it? But it you can't discuss this without discussing the part where there was hundreds of people going missing daily. Right. Sure. They hired extra police officers mm-hmm. just to investigate missing people. Yeah. There was task force that were literally just for like the World's Fair missing people. Yeah. There were hundreds of cases that just went unanswered, like families that just went unanswered. Mm-hmm. And they even went as far as like the police put out an ad in the newspaper that was like the a respectable, honorable person looking for a secretary will never ask for specifics. Yeah, they were they will, very... they will never say, I want a blonde <laughs> with blue eyes who's this yeah. height and send me a picture. And this they will was never pre... S- they sent... They, they had this posted pre the fair opening. Like, right. because that that's how big the fair... Like, people are already coming to the city because of the fair. Right. They... So they were putting this out, and like, this is, what, two years before the fair? Yeah, and this is also... I mean, it's... It, does it's not a small feat that this is also the time when women are kind of going into the workforce without like young women are traveling to Chicago specifically to come here and work 
as the secretary, as maids, as all this other stuff away from their families. This is not something that was really done yet. Right. This was a big thing. So Holmes literally was never looked at it for any of that. It was, oh, we heard that she stayed here. You were the last person to see you. So mm-hmm. in your head, you're like, how did they not connect that all of these people were missing yeah. at the same place? But then you also think, like, they probably had several task force working on several different cases that they wouldn't have been, they did not have a system sophisticated enough to handle all of the amount of cases and the fact that it was like, oh, this officer questioned this exact same person two days apart from each other or like whatever it was. Yeah. And that's, I feel like you have to say that to show how easy it was for Holmes because as manipulative and everything he was, you see that in, you don't necessarily see that in how he handles the police in the beginning when he's getting questioned. Mm-hmm. You see it in how he handles the women. Yeah. And you see it with how he handles the police officers after he's caught and in jail. Yeah. All of these people were just like, oh, he's just so marvelous. He's yeah. so nice. Like, he's just like, what a smooth talker. Like, he had it. To where when he was in jail, he had it worked out where he was getting a daily newspaper. He was getting a special breakfast. He had all these special treatments. Prisoners prisoners and police officers were, like, catering to him because of his ability to talk and, like, get away with stuff. And just be like, oh, me? Innocent me? I couldn't have done that. Yeah. He, He and he tried... Like, he knew how to, like, make women feel things that I guess they probably shouldn't have felt back then. Like, he did things. And one of the quotes that struck me, and this is the very beginning of the book, he goes, it says, To women, as yet unaware of his private obsessions, it was an appealing delicacy. He broke prevailing rules of casual intimacy. He stood too close, stared too hard touched too much and long and women adored him for it so like he he did things that like were like it's okay if people touch us now well okay as long as we approve of it right um but you know back then like if you wanted like you liked a guy and he touched you that was still kind of wrong you know like so he was doing this. He was going against all the social social norms of the time. And the mm-hmm. women the women dug it because they're like, oh, he likes me. You know, yeah. I, he just he 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 knew how to manipulate um and make people feel liked or wanted. Yeah. And it's just like his his last so he like well he married twice officially. Yes. And then he married a third time, but they just had the ceremony. She thought it was real. I mean, yep. Sarah, but they never signed any papers or it was it was never put into the um the you know, the register. But mm. her name was Minnie Williams, right? Minnie Williams. Mm-hmm. And um she was she was not his normal type 
Like, Mm-mm. the only reason he liked her is because she was basically rich. She um she had a lot of assets. She had the land that was um given to her when her uncle passed away. So she had some assets that some of the other women didn't necessarily had, but most of the time he went after very pretty, very striking young women. Mm-hmm. And Minnie was not that person, but her sister, from what I understood, seemed a little bit more yeah, attractive than the sister. So, I mean, Holmes also played the long game because yeah. Minnie disappeared very early in in the scheme. I mean, she obviously wasn't like one of the first people. It was like the third like quote wife mm-hmm. um but he sent her trunks as like a gift like somebody was like oh I don't like he gave the trunks to um his one uh his assistant the his assistant's family Mr. um Pitzel Pitzel yeah Pitzel he gave um, then he, well he gave the trunk the clothes to the wife and said make make clothes for your children yeah, for your make girls, clothes for these children he ultimately, after he leaves Chicago, like he kills Winnie or Winnie, he kills Minnie before, gives the trunk and the clothes to his Mr. Pitzel's wife, tells her to make clothes for the kids. He uses the trunks later after he leaves Chicago. He bounces yeah. around to all these cities with Mr. Pitzel and his kids. Yeah. And he has these and he's like. He uses her name and has these trunks and one of his like alibis that he tries to get away with because they say, oh, you murdered her. And he's like, how could I have murdered her? The trunks are in this one city and she signed in there. Right. So he had a long game that he played. He might not have known exactly how it was going to work out, but he definitely had a long game with a lot of stuff. He came. He he had somewhat of a plan he definitely took Um, his time the fact that he had the letters and all this different stuff one of the like one of the crimes that he ultimately gets taken down for is the murder of mr pitzel and the children yeah and the only reason why they're really able to piece a lot of this stuff together and prove that it was actually him is because he had the children write notes and letters to the mother and he he kept kept them And there was a reason, like, there had to have been a reason that he kept them. There was a long game for why he kept them. Right. I think, I personally feel like he kept them as a little bit more than just as a memento of, like, what he Mm -hmm. was doing. Like, it wasn't just, like, um, what is it called? When a killer takes something. A trophy? A trophy, yes. I, I think it was more than just a trophy, which I kind yeah. of felt like the investigator was kind of alluding to that with the letters because he was like, why would he keep these letters? I don't think it was a trophy. of what I think there was a long-term plan well, that he unfortunately, well, fortunately, didn't get to, right. to do. Well, Larson touched on it at some point where, like, he never really had a trophy like with all the other women all his other victims he never really had a trophy he he kind of kept them for a little while mm-hmm. 
And then that was enough for him. And he was just able to move on. Like he didn't yeah. need something to hang on to. So yeah, I don't, I'm not sure why he kept those letters, but I don't, I don't think they were trophies. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing that, <laughs> the other thing that was really interesting that they hit on throughout the years of Holmes in his, mm-hmm. in his hotel. And even when he was traveling, is they would talk about how he was, like, kind of uneasy. And there was, like, kind of a smell about him. And there was, like, certain things. Yeah. The mes- medicinal smell. Like, yeah, the like, smell around the him and his house. And the medicinal smell, like, all this different stuff. And even when he was traveling, there was, like, some smells and, like, actions that he would do. But the fact that he had an alias of being a doctor, they were just like, oh, he's a doctor. And he has a pharmacy in his hotel. In the house, and the, yeah. Yeah, like, of course he would smell like that. So everything was so calculated Yeah, with how he did everything. He was able to sell the bodies and create skeletons for medical schools and stuff like that. And I, he just figured out how to do all these things and he was just able to do it. And yeah. knowing he did all of this stuff, he, in his personal memoir, which he writes to try to get sympathy for the jury. From the public, yeah. He doesn't want anybody to know his business. He writes what he writes in his memoir for the long game. He was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to get sympathy from the public. Because they're going to see that I'm the victim. I'm innocent. I'm going to spin this story in the way I'm going to spin it. Well, it's just like he... he could, Since he couldn't charm them in, in real life. Because he right. was incarcerated. He was going to charm them through his memoir. Um, obviously. And he was almost successful. <laughs> almost, yeah. Because he ended up with a connection to an editor from a newspaper who agreed to print it right away mm-hmm. and get it out before his trial. So it almost worked. And even the investigators were like, how is he getting this memoir out so quickly? Right. When they discovered Mr. Pritzel's son... Right. It was not 100% that it was actually him. Yeah. They had to have the mother identify him. They identified it because of a toy that his father had bought for him. Some clothes clothes and and the toy. Yeah, yeah, some clothes and the toy. And she was like, I packed it myself. He never traveled anywhere without it. It was a little, like, tin man that he bought at the World Fair. Um, that his father bought for him at the World Fair. Mm-hmm. And it was the hook, line, and sinker for getting yes. homes. And the investigator was, like, trying to send out news to the to the jail, to the prison, to not let him get his newspaper that morning. Because he was like, I'm going to tell him that we got this. I'm going to see his face because there's no way he's going to be able to talk out of this. Yeah. Because at this point, even before this, the investigator, I just keep saying the investigator and not his actually name, um, oh. to get Detective Geyer. Yeah. Um, there's a book about him. Not that yeah. we need to read it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. He 
was so sure even before he started like piecing together all the children he was so sure of everything that he was like I got him this time yeah and he walked into the jail cell and Holmes was there reading his paper he was like just missed it like by minutes of like getting the paper and the mess and like the memo to him to like not let him get the paper that morning yeah well and the other thing was because of Geyer because of his investigation on trying to find um these children these three children which ends up being national news Mm -hmm. Chicago's like oh maybe we should look into this guy he used to own this yeah house hotel and that's when they start to realize like they find bones and school fragments um they just found all sorts of stuff they found a footprint from one of his uh first victims victims at the house it's just like they found stuff and the the inside of a safe they found it inside of a safe and they were like but it was also at a point where it was like they couldn't figure out why there was a footprint and a female why it was so footprint. High, a female a footprint, footprint yeah. and why it was so high because it was high enough too that it like just didn't kind of make sense right and they ultimately ended up deciding that there was like acid in there and she was trying to kick the door open yeah so there's that and then of course in the fashion of the devil in the white city basically days after they've start they figured out what's going on at home's old building it burns down mm-hmm. and, and they believe arson but they, they i mean they knew he was because they found all the they found the gas chamber they found the, yeah. the giant kiln Kilm, um, you know, they, they found the safe, they found the room that had like no exits with the trap door, yeah, the yeah. hallways that like led to nowhere, or like the corridors that led to nowhere, yeah. So they, they, they knew, and especially after they found the body parts, they were definitely, um, like, yeah, this guy. Well, and then like the conversation of the trunks, because that's the thing is like, yeah. He had trunks going in and out of his house, like, in the middle of the night with strict instructions, like, do not just, you cannot leave this in the middle of the street. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. And so there was, like, strict instructions with it as well. Yeah. Well, and he was Um, even, like, he didn't. And it was, like, the there was a witness about it, and that's how they found out that he sent it to the one guy to make the skeletons. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then they also, he would also, one time he was watching one of the guys take the the two trunks of the sisters, mm-hmm. Minnie, Minnie, his wife-ish, yeah. and her sister, and for the second trunk, the guy stands it up, on, like, so it's tall instead of on its bottom or whatever, and, yeah. like, he's knocking on the window, like, lay it flat, yeah. Like, because it would have made a difference. Um, Like, she might have, like, leaped out or something. I'm not right. exactly sure what um, he had done to her. But he did not want the the box standing tall. He wanted it laying flat long yeah. ways. 
And I mean, he even in his confession, like his confession, quote unquote, um, really his like his personal memoir that he wrote. Right. He doesn't even confess to everything. There's certain things that he will confess to. Yeah. He alludes to the missing people. He kind of alludes to, like, the murders. But they have him, they end up ultimately charging him for just the father and the children. Mm-hmm. The judge decided that everything before that was admissible. So he couldn't, he, they didn't even get to charge him for everything or use everything right. in the trial for, of like everybody else. They think they have him for sure. Like the detective, detective guy are for sure thinks that they have him with nine murders, I think. Mm-hmm. But they were like, there's countless more that they oh, could yeah. just not even know about. They think, so, um, they, they, not Geyer, but, like, Chicago, I think they were thinking up to two. The One of the highest estimates was up to 200. They're not, obviously, they're not positive on that. But they yeah. think that there's a possibility that he could have murdered um, 200 people. I mean, but he was doing moms and daughters and obviously Children. sisters. He not just, a lot of men. Pitzer, uh, well, Pitzel is, like... That was a weird one. Yeah, he really didn't do a lot of men. But the thing was, was he definitely didn't. How do I want to say it? Well, well, in the book, at one point, like when the fair actually opens, he would like if men came by to to rent a room, he was like, oh, I have no vacancies and send them down the street. But yeah. if a woman came in five minutes after that, oh, guess what? I have a spot for you. He was yeah. very selective because he mm. well. Yeah, he, he knew he could get away with it with the women. Well, and he was careful with who he selected. He made sure oh, yeah. that they did not have a lot of family. There was not a lot of connect. Like they could be in contact with them, but not necessarily extremely mm-hmm. close to them. So he was very he was very selective, and I think because he ended up traveling to other cities with Pitzel uh, with Pitzel. I feel like if he could have successfully done the insurance fraud and gotten rid of his wife and the children without Mr. Pitzel actually saying anything or doing anything, I don't think he would have killed him. Yeah, probably. But I think ultimately because his goal was like the children and the wife and all of that, I think he just ended up getting in the way. You know, what I think is um, kind of funny is his last fiance slash wife. I don't I don't I can't remember if they actually ever got married, but Yoke um, York. Yeah, York. He never did anything like they were together like three years, two, three yeah. years. And he did because he basically knocked everybody off. Like, yeah, it was pretty um, he was very consistent with like, oh, he'd have relationships with people. He would get engaged to them. I mean, obviously he didn't do it to his first wife because he left her shortly after they got married. Um, and then there was the the Murda, the wife Murda, who he ended up moving her to a place 
away from Chicago, so mm-hmm. out of sight, out of mind. Um, but basically, everybody after that, you know, he just if he got in a relationship with them, you know, to to build up his rep, you know, his trust in him. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, the the last woman that he's with, he's like he's in jail, and she she has visited him. You know, like. It it makes me wonder what was going on there, like if she knew or if she was part of it or a little bit. Do you know? Because I mean? she was traveling with yeah. him and the children for a little while until the children disappeared. Right, and I think, I mean, yeah, he definitely didn't end up doing anything to her. Part of me wonders if he needed her to kind of help with some of the alibis with yeah, the children. True. But he never, like, they never stayed at the same places. Like, the children would stay at a different hotel than him and her. So weird, yeah. So, and there was even a point where the detective realized that... The children's mom... Is that where you're going to get at? No. Like, they, there were points where they were traveling where they didn't even know about each other. Yeah. Well, and then at one point, the he had him and his fiance, wife, whatever, at one hotel, the children at another location. And then he had the children's mother and their two siblings three blocks away. Yeah. Like, he was very... Right. He's very calculating. Extremely. You definitely get how monstrous he is. Mm-hmm. in this book yeah you get like why he got away with it yeah how charming he was how how he worked the system like he just yeah it to work it all yeah I mean even to the point where Detective Geyer was like I don't know if I'm gonna get this guy because mm-hmm. he I mean he literally went back to cities and retraced his steps yeah after he'd already done it, weeks after he'd already done it, because he's he knew he was missing something yep. and he could not figure out how to get there. But without that piece that he was missing, Holmes would have gone free. Yeah. And Holmes knew it, too. He was oh, sure he was very cocky, very like, well, what are you going to do? Like, what do you even have on me now? You can't prove this. You can't prove that. Right. He does end up getting convicted. Yes. He ends up getting hung. Mm-hmm. And I found it really interesting, like, Holmes's demands with his lawyers after everything. He was afraid that somebody would steal his body. Oh, poor him. I know. So he gave strict instructions with his lawyers for how he was to be buried he refused the autopsies. His lawyers had turned down offers of up to like $5,000 for his body. It said the, the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia wanted his brain. Right. Who, uh, Milton Greenman, he was the curator of, uh, Wistar's renowned collection he said the man was something more, uh, more than a mere criminal who acted on impulse. 
He was a man who studied crime and planned his career. His brain might have given science valuable aid. And I think, I mean, Holmes in his memoir says, oh, I'm a dim man. I don't, there's no way I could possibly have accomplished any of this. I wasn't successful in school. I didn't go very far. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. So he was trying to play on the fact that he's just like an innocent, right, dim worker who's just trying to make his life meet, um, ends meet. But I, it's, I don't know. It was just like really interesting how everything went down. There was a lot of, um, like once he actually was executed, they, um, they had to have detectives guard his body to make sure nobody would take it. Mm-hmm. They opened a devil, a double grave and filled it with cement inserted his coffin and then poured more over the top of it ultimately he ended up getting buried in an unmarked grave right so i mean he he made sure like you're not gonna get to my body right you're not gonna be able to dissect me you're not gonna be able to do this stuff and he it just shows like what he was doing to the other people when he was when he was carving into him and doing all of his stuff, he knew what would be done to him because yeah. of what he was doing to others. But they did term him like a devil. This is one of the last things I want to talk about with him. And it's actually not even about him. It's how strange things started to happen that made Holmes's claim about being the devil seem almost plausible. Detective Geyer became seriously ill after the trial. The warden of Moya Menson Prison committed suicide. The jury foreman was electrocuted in a freak accident. The priest who delivered Holmes' last rites was found dead on the grounds of his church of mysterious causes. The father of Emmeline Sigrand was grotesquely burned in a broiler explosion and a fire destroyed the office of district attorney, George Graham, leaving only a photograph of Holmes unscathed. Right. Those were just some of the people who were involved with his trial and with his investigation of everything. It's just funny how, stuff like that connects I always find things like that really no that it is really interesting like is it just is it bad luck or is it like did he curse all that right right exactly and I mean a lot of people who were connected with the trial and knew a lot of the stuff and knew a lot of those people thought that he he really was the devil and caused all of that well and like if you think about it like back then we kind of talked about it in the last book like there's a lot more religious like people you know did a lot more church and everything back then so it's it a bigger it's a bigger part of life and they then and they were kind of into that whole weird seance spiritualism I mean, which is you're in the gilded area right off of the victorian era and victorians yeah. were obsessed <laughs> crazy with the supernatural and seances yeah they were and i mean because you're getting 
right into like Houdini and all those where like yeah. all of this stuff was major for them. So they absolutely believed in all of it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you add in your, your religion, you add in your seances and mm-hmm. of course people are going to be like, Oh, he's the devil. He cursed us. Um, yeah. Cause we went after him or, you know, like I can see it like how, especially back then it was very, um, how they were like, oh, he is the devil, you know. Yeah. So, friend, would you suggest this book? Yeah. yeah. I feel like I have to suggest this book because yeah. we touched on, like, I feel like we touched on, like, a quarter of this book. There's so much in it. So, so much. Like, you, if, if you're a history person, read it. Yeah, yeah it kind of talks about our murderer, but... Like, Josie and I talked about, like, it's, what, maybe a quarter of the book, I'd say. The majority yeah. of it, the book is um, about Chicago, about the World's, World's Fair, and the World's Fair creators. Um, yeah. And especially if you're interested in maybe even Chicago history or world history in the sense of, like, how how we got a lot of things that are commonplace today. Light right. bulbs. You know, like, because back then, people mostly had kerosene lanterns for their light sources in their homes. So going to this fair and seeing everything lit up in light bulbs is just, it's magical. It's absolutely magical. So It's called the World Fair, and we didn't even really hit on how much of the world was involved. You had countries from all over the world who had exhibits... Um, I mean, we didn't really get a touch on any of that. I mean, it really was a spectacle. And to read about it, for me here, yeah, how much it brought worldly things to people who would never have guessed. Right. I mean, it, it really was a time of spectacle and... It was. it was just it was just a time of like so many new things. And that's why I feel like the White City and like the story of H.H. H. Holmes goes so well together because with something new that comes out, you get the good and the bad. And you had all of this really great stuff coming out of it. Yeah. And then you also have like the person who's dubbed like really America's first serial killer. Yeah, right definitely. off the right off the foot of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, because um, yeah, he really was because like Jack the Ripper had just stopped, and then it was basically kind of Holmes. Like you didn't know it was happening, right? And so it was happening with him, right? So. And so it's I mean being being people that you and I are, where we've always been intrigued with like that dark side of everything that's good. It's so fitting to me that that Holmes did this when he did it because of all the good things and all the incredible things that came out of it. You also have to have this underside of all of it. And that goes into show like how smart he was, was he saw this and he saw it as like the perfect time to like do what he, he wanted, craved, needed to do. Like whatever it is about him that, made him do it like he knew this was the place and the time to do it because he knew he could get away with it I yeah so I 
I would say yes. Yes. I will recommend this. Sheila? I would, yeah. Go read the book. Yeah, go go read read this book. It's really good. Devil in the White City. And um, it's kind of a magical, it's like a magical book, like. Right. The quote that starts, you have a quote from Burnham and Holmes at the very beginning of where it starts, and it's, make no little plans, they have no magic to stir men's blood is the one for Daniel H. Burnham. And it's like, there's so much magic in this whole book. And he definitely lived off of that. And then, I mean, Holmes is, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing. Right. Which just goes right hand in hand with like, you have the good and the bad. Yeah. So yes, go read it. It was great. It's a good it was book. so yeah, it was so good. Listen to it. Um, if you're if you are one of those people who you're like, I don't know if I can just sit and read a lot of historical facts, I absolutely would suggest listening to it. It was a really great listen. I want to go back and read it. Mm. Um, I won't do it anytime soon because it's just really fresh. I would like to go back and read it just because. I do think that there is a lot of information in it that I definitely miss some of it listening to it. Right. But being the first time, not knowing really what to expect and where I was at, listening to it was definitely the better choice for me at the time. Yeah, I I read it and I I didn't feel it was hard to read (laughs) as a a nonfiction book. Like it, Mm -hmm. I felt like it, it very much told the story and it was very magical and I wanted to read more because sometimes like I said earlier I do feel like sometimes books get bogged down with facts and history and it's just kind of boring because they're like I'm just going to tell you everything they're not gonna they're not gonna necessarily put the flowery stuff into the story or into the book to make it interesting. And I think, I think Eric Larson hit it on the head when he wrote this, that you can read this and enjoy it without it being boring. He knew how to write it. So he definitely took a lot of care with the people, with the information. And he was very strategic with how he looped it all in together. It was done very nicely. Um, yeah. So, our next episode is going to be the comparison of yes. these two books. Yes. Um, which I'm really excited to talk about the comparisons. It'll be fun. And then, um, yeah, and then we will be announcing some fun plans that we yeah. have coming. Keep, uh, so just remember, in we're going to take July and August off. Around the beginning of July, keep your eyes out for a, uh, a small episode I'd say probably no more than 10 minutes and we'll tell you our summer plans yeah what we're gonna do for you in the fall um yeah we'll have that for you and we'll probably we might pop in a time or two um throughout the summer just to say hi and uh, let you know what we have going on and yeah what maybe a summer reading list summer reading Mm -hmm. list maybe you know we'll have some fun We'll be here, but we're going to be working. Uh, keep reading. Yeah. But, yeah, we'll have a summer reading list for ourselves. We'll talk about what books we plan to read. Yes. 
Of course, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook. Yep. You can email us at potheadswhoread at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can find us on any major podcast platform. Yeah. Rate us, subscribe. Leave, leave a, a comment. Review. Leave a review, yeah. Leave a comment, leave a review. We would love for that to happen. And that actually just helps us move up in our genre of podcasts. Yeah, that's it for this episode, I think. Right, yeah, so go crack a book open. And thank you for reading with us. Bye. Bye.